Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, and The Wellness Trap, which came out on April 25th and is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more and order it now at christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap. Hey there, welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is fellow author and journalist Virginia Soul Smith, who joins me to discuss her new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, the allure of wellness approaches for those with chronic pain and illness, her experience navigating endometriosis and migraines in diet and wellness culture, the difficulty of describing pain, the notes of orthorexia and fat phobia that show up in otherwise helpful kid-feeding philosophies, the problem with dieting dads, and more. Before the interview, just a few quick announcements. This podcast is brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. The book explores the connections between diet culture and wellness culture, how the wellness space became overrun with scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and order the book, or just pop into your favorite local bookstore and ask for the wellness trap. If you like this show and want to help support it, I'd be so grateful if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it. You can do that wherever you're listening to this, and you can also get it as a newsletter in your inbox every other week, where you can either listen to the audio or read a full transcript or both. Subscribe to that at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. And if you upgrade to a paid subscription, you'll get early access to regular episodes, plus occasional bonus episodes, including a new one coming out next week. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to learn more and sign up. And now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Virginia Soul Smith. So I'd love to start off by talking about your personal history with wellness culture. You shared with me in a recent conversation on your podcast that you have migraines and endometriosis, which, as you've said, and as I've seen, are really two conditions that get a lot of wellness industry buzz and can lead people down some rabbit holes, right? And it it sounds like you definitely went on some journeys with trying to manage those things alternatively. So I'm curious, you know, to get into some of the details of those wild rides and where you are now in your relationship with wellness approaches to your conditions. Yeah, so I developed migraines. It was my freshman college orientation was when I had my first aura migraine where I was like, am I having a stroke? What is happening? You know, like such a disorienting experience for folks who don't have auras. You like see flashes of light and in mine, like everyone's faces look weird and it's a super disorienting experience. And then it's followed by like, you know, a day or more of blinding pain and throwing up and all that good stuff. So that started when I was 18 and the medical 
mainstream medical response was initially just to like, oh, let's try a different birth control pill. Let's try another birth control pill. Let's try another birth control pill. And then to start prescribing various medications. And, you know, at this point, this is like late 90s, early 2000s. They really did not have a lot of great medications for managing chronic migraines. So I was being really under treated by the mainstream medical model. And then the endometriosis really, you know, looking back, I probably had it all the way along, or certainly by the time I was about 14, I always had really debilitating periods. But various hormonal birth controls would kind of like keep it at bay for a bit. And then when I was, oh, I don't know, 26, 27, I wanted to get off hormones in part because I was starting to like hear all this wellness culture talk that somehow hormonal birth control was like shutting off your body's natural cycles and, you know, that I was like totally being controlled by this pill in a way that felt wrong for someone who was trying to eat organic and do a lot of yoga at that point. And, you know, like I didn't want to be so dependent on it. So I switched to a non-hormonal IUD for my birth control. And that's when my endometriosis just came out full. I mean, I was really, really chronically ill for several years. I would have ovarian cysts that would rupture periodically throughout my cycle. My periods were incredibly, like, we're talking like vomiting, can't stand up straight pain. And the migraines were also exacerbating in sort of tandem with that. So there were several years where I just felt at war with my body. I felt like every day it was like, will I be able to work? Will I be able to function? Or am I going to spend the day, you know, lying on the couch watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer reruns because that's like all I can handle? And, you know, mainstream medicine didn't have a lot for me on these fronts. Like, it was like, take Advil, use a heating pad, things that were not. And I felt very dismissed by a lot of doctors. So that did push me towards exploring more wellness approaches. And I tried acupuncture, chiropractors, oh gosh, what else? Different diet, you know, elimination diet type things. None of it ever made anything better more than like, maybe it's working this month and then the next month things are bad again. Like it never felt like we were moving the needle on anything. And ultimately I was like spending a lot of extra money. I mean, I was trying, I remember definitely trying to do a lot of yoga and I think yoga is great, but like yoga to manage chronic pain conditions, it's not going to be a total silver bullet by any means. And then getting into stuff like, what was it called? Feldenkrais or these different, the Alexander technique, like all these different variations on like chiropractor work when like body movement stuff. And a lot of that also made me really anxious about my weight because the people who offer those services tend to be very like thin, willowy women who have beautiful posture. And so I was very fixated on my weight being somehow the problem because I, w- I didn't have the body that matched up with the body that they have by living this life. So it was all very tangled for me in anxiety about weight and anxiety about these health conditions, even though my weight had absolutely nothing, I mean, nothing to do with my migraines and my endometriosis. Like these are conditions I've had from the time I was a thin teenager on through being a small fat adult. Like it's not, there's no relationship there, but that was where I put a lot of energy. So trying detoxes, Spending a lot of money on these things, the acupuncture in particular was crazy expensive and not covered by insurance at that point. Um, 
Ultimately, what happened was I ended up having surgery for the endometriosis, which bought me a couple of months of relief. And so this is, again, where I'm like, Western medicine wasn't that great either because I had like four months of feeling really good after the surgery, and then my cysts returned, which is what happens with a lot of folks with that surgery. And then I was very lucky. It's very common for folks with endometriosis. I had stage four, which is a pretty severe level. It's very common at that level to have infertility struggles. And I didn't. I was able to conceive the old-fashioned way and have my first daughter. And that pregnancy actually shifted something in my hormones. And both conditions became more manageable. And then after she was born... I went on the Mirena IUD, which has a low dose of hormones, and manages to completely control my endometriosis for the most part, and discovered there's a new class of injectable migraine drugs that have worked really well for me. And I think those two like mainstream medical interventions combined with age and other body changes have led me to be in a much more stable place for the past eight years or so. And it is frustrating to look back and see how many things I was chasing because of these failures by both systems, right? Like the doctors, you know, the drug that ended up working for me with migraines wasn't even on the market or approved back then. So, you know, they didn't have the right options, but they also didn't have the empathy or the compassion or it felt like the curiosity to try to figure out what was going on. And then the wellness folks were presenting with lots of empathy and curiosity. I felt seen and I felt heard by them in a way that the doctors weren't, but they had no effective tools. It was spending lots of money on things that were not doing anything and were often creating more stress for me because it was expensive, because it was time away from work to go to these like, you know, long appointments. I had to travel to find people. And because of that added layer of the body size stuff coming into play. That's so interesting. And I feel like so common for people who have chronic illness, chronic pain, chronic conditions of any kind. I definitely went through that myself of feeling more supported and empathized with by various alternative spaces that I found myself in and feeling dismissed by the Western healthcare system. And it didn't have great solutions for me. And so it does make it so attractive. But yeah, when the things that they're offering as solutions are not actually effective. That can really be discouraging for so many people. I mean, what what was it like for you when you recognized that the the wellness approaches weren't working? I just felt really hopeless. And it felt like it was really hard to imagine a relationship with my body that wasn't combative because it felt like there were no options for me. If the mainstream doctors were being sort of dismissive, you know, I can remember going in in like really acute pain and them saying, what is your pain level? And, you know, on that one to 10 scale and me being like a 10. And the doctor was like, no, a 10, you'd be passed out. So you're obviously not at a 10. And it was like, <laughs> okay, I don't know what to do if you're just going to deny what I'm telling you I'm feeling, you know, like I don't know where we go with that conversation. And then on the flip side, you know, getting this sort of compassionate support from folks who were also, though, selling me expensive protocols. And and there's a kind of gaslighting that happens there where I would be sort of aware on one level that we're not really making progress, right? I'm still missing work. I'm still experiencing however many pain days a month. And yet they're looking for like, oh, but it seems like the onset was like 15 minutes faster or slower. Or like you're saying, you know, so it was the same kind of thing of actually dismissing me where... 
the doctor's doing it in a more sort of like blunt way, maybe of like, that's not your pain level, but they're sort of looking for markers of success that they can convince me something's working when I know nothing is working. That's such an important point. I feel like I see that a lot with people who are trying functional medicine approaches or integrative medicine where their doctor is looking at these like esoteric labs or sort of non-traditional interpretations of standard labs and being like, but your inflammation levels are coming down or whatever. What does that even mean? Right, exactly. Like there's no real standard way to assess that. And then also, you know, looking at things through this lens of inflammation or through this lens of like food, supposed food intolerance or something being like, well, of course, you're going to have pain. Like someone for the book told me, their doctor said, of course, you're going to have pain because your whole system is inflamed. So like this is just what it is to live with chronic inflammation. And it turned out they also had like a raging case of endometriosis that was causing unbearable pain. Mm, yeah, it's not just mysterious inflammation. It's quite concrete. We can see it on ultrasounds all over. Yeah. And there was literally a growth protruding from their abdomen, which is why they finally were taken seriously, you know, and it's like, that's what it has to be for so many people to actually get that kind of attention. And sometimes in, I mean, definitely in mainstream healthcare, but also sometimes in alternative healthcare as well. Definitely. And I, you know, I think back to like what I had those debilitating, awful periods as like a 12 and 13 year old. And that I was basically being told by doctors then, well, this is just having your period, you know, this is just your body, this is just being a woman. And like, what a terrible, insidious message to be sort of embedding in a child in their understanding of their body that like pain is just part of it. And you're going to have to accept these intense pain days. And, you know, like, this is just normal for you, as opposed to like, oh, this is, you know, I mean, no one was looking at a 13-year-old and saying, does she have endometriosis? Which it feels like a pretty major thing to have missed and then continue to miss. And we know with endometriosis that it takes like, I don't know, nine to 11 years to get diagnosed most of the time because, because exactly of that, because we're so dismissive of women's pain and girls' pain. Yeah. Well, and I think it goes to something that you alluded to earlier too, of like the difficulty of communicating pain or like having a sort of standard to talk about pain. You linked to a great piece in your newsletter recently from The Guardian that we'll post in the show notes that's an excerpt from a book about endometriosis and this difficulty of communicating pain. And the author said that the difficulty of conveying what a nine or a 10 meant to her versus what the doctor has in mind, right? Because like you experienced too, right? Like the doctor's like, well, you'd be passed out because maybe the doctor's frame of reference is people who've been severely injured or who are hospitalized right, right. or like, you know, that have this level of pain that's like not sort of something that someone could be walking around with every day. But but she hadn't explained that to me. She wasn't like a 10 is, you know, you have bones protruding from your body from a horrific car accident. And then I would have been like, oh, like a seven, I guess, you know, <laughs> right. there was no examples. It was just like, give me your pain scale. And I was like, well, this is what my pain, you know, I know I right. can't lift my head off the pillow. I know I can't stand up straight. Like, I know I'm vomiting like this. I don't know how to characterize this for you. Yeah. Yeah. And when that's the highest level of pain you've experienced in your life, then it's a 10 on your scale from, you know, my whole fertility journey. And I had complications with IVF with the egg retrieval. I ended up being hospitalized after the egg retrieval. Yeah, it was a whole thing. And at first it was kind of the same thing. I was like, I'm in extreme pain. Like 
please help me. And you know, the doctor on call was like, okay, we'll try to manage it at home, you know, hot water bottles, this and that. And like, I was like, now it's radiating to my shoulder. Now I can't move. <laughs> you know, like it was, I feel like this is more than a hot water bottle situation, yeah. but okay. Yeah. And I've since learned that this like particular way that it was radiating to my shoulder is a hallmark of internal bleeding. And that's turned out what I had. You know, it took multiple calls over like increasing levels of desperation to kind of finally have that doctor be like, okay, this can be a sign of internal bleeding. Maybe you should go to the ER. But at first he was even like, you know, if you can just hold out for two more hours, we're opening at six. If you can come in like right when we open, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I was like, it, it was 4.30 in the morning or something. And I was like, I, I can't, I have to go. No, no. And thank God, you know, we went to the ER and I got help and I was hospitalized for a couple of days, like while they figured out what was going on. And but, you know, in that time, it was like, that was now my new 10, you know, like I had never experienced anything remotely similar to that. My 10 before was, you know, maybe half that or a third that or whatever. So it like readjusted my threshold for pain. One of my children, I delivered vaginally without an epidural. So I have a clear sense of what a 10 is. And I will say my endometriosis pain was on par with that 10. Like it was the same, you know, it was, it was the same. So like, I remember when I was in labor being like, I mean, I'm not excited to be experiencing this, but I know this pain, you know, like this is not unfamiliar to me. And so again, this dismissal of like, yeah, everyone is entitled to their own individual 10. And also like anyone's 10 is terrible. And by like a lot of objective measurements we could use for pain, you had pain off the charts. I had pain off the charts. Like it should have been being taken much more seriously. Totally. I mean, I think about the the sort of common knowledge that childbirth is one of the most excruciating things anyone can go through. And the fact that you were experiencing that level of pain from endometriosis, like on a monthly basis, and nobody took that seriously is just so upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. And the people who were taking it seriously were like, do this cleanse or, you know, try this. Right. The people who had the empathy didn't have answers. They had things to sell me. And body anxiety is to let, you know, they were very focused. So the other thing that is common with endometriosis is weight fluctuations because, you know, depending on what all the different lesions and cysts are doing, like, you know, your weight and your shape of your abdomen changes very dramatically. And so that was like what they would zero in on, you know, and looking back, it was disconcerting for me where I was in my relationship with my body, but it was the pain that was the problem, right? Like the body shape was not the problem. So it was just interesting that that was kind of where people's focus went. I mean, it makes total sense given the way wellness culture works and the way diet culture works. But that was what I fixated on as well at that point because it was like that was the thing that I could show people. I could show them like pictures of my, like taken sideways of my abdomen on different days. And it was really clear in a way that me describing my experience of pain was not apparently clear enough to people. That's so interesting. And yeah, the, the fact that the weight bias is just so baked into that experience and really weight wellness culture, I think just kind of incorporates the values of diet culture wholesale and then adds more of its own that are really problematic as well. But the diet culture is very much baked in. So even if they're not saying it, even if they're not like your weight is causing this or your weight is the problem, it's there under the surface. That's what they'll respond to. Like, oh, you're right. Your abdomen is really distended on those days. Okay. Yeah. You, how many pounds extra fluid or whatever? And it's like, it's not, 
it's maybe like mildly medically interesting, but it's not the story. It's not the thing we need to change. I mean, I remember even when I had my surgery, the doctor told me how many pounds he removed from me. Like I would be really delighted by that information of like, that's how much endometriosis he took out. And I just remember being like, I just feel like we're focused on the wrong thing. <laughs> that's not, it's not what I came here to do, but okay, this is where we are. So by that point, you were already questioning the whole diaculture operation. I was. I wasn't fully to my big turning point moments, but I was both frustrated that that was such a focus and also buying, you know, I remember feeling like I was sort of disturbed he told me that and also like, oh, okay, I guess that's good. I guess that's a sign that it worked, you know, if my weight dropped or whatever. It was very convoluted and there was a lot of sort of back and forthing for me at that point. I'm curious, kind of connecting that to your work with kids and kid feeding, your experience with your daughter, Violet, that you wrote about in your first book and sort of the medical trauma that she went through and having to learn how to help her eat in a way that was more connected. And it seems like that really helped you get past diet culture, the sadder division of responsibility approach. And so now, as a person who's rooted in an anti-diet stance, you're starting to see and question some of the layers of fat phobia that maybe are still apparent in that model. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, you know, the nuances of how that model can be really helpful for feeding kids and the fat phobia that's still baked in that's, that's harmful and problematic. Yeah. So the experience with Violet that I wrote about in The Eating Instinct is that she was born with a rare congenital heart condition. She stopped eating at one month when she went into heart failure, which is a logical coping strategy to, uh, for a baby in heart failure. But then even once we had, you know, come out of the intense like emergency piece of the crisis and we're then on this journey of like multiple heart surgeries, but she's, she's medically stable, she couldn't eat and she was dependent on a feeding tube. And so we were in this very unusual situation of everything I thought I knew about being a good mom, especially a good mom of a baby, really boiled down to like, I will breastfeed and then I will make my own baby food and I will do this whole perfect feeding a baby thing. And none of that was available. She couldn't nurse. She couldn't take a bottle. She was dependent on a tube. So we had a very different trajectory. And that was terrible and traumatic in many ways. But a silver lining of it is that it really forced me to step outside the paradigm of everything I thought I knew about how we should eat, what healthy eating looks like, and just realize how much I'd been looking for rules and plans and answers from other people, and that, in fact, we were going to have to figure this out on our own. And in the process of that, yes, I found Ellen Satter's Division of Responsibility, which was a real liberation moment for me. I really can't underscore that enough because it was the first time I'd found a framework that said, you are not responsible for making your child eat because the bedrock of division of responsibility is that parents are in charge of offering food and offering plenty of good nourishing food, like enough food for your child throughout the day, but that the child is in charge of whether and how much they eat at every meal. And of course, we had a baby on a feeding tube. We weren't going to take away the feeding tube. Like we were sort of supplementing division of responsibility by making sure she got calories since she was in a place where she wouldn't eat at all by mouth. But it meant it took so much pressure off because it was like, okay, I'm doing my job. I'm showing up with the feeding tube. And then anything else we're doing is like 
it can be more on her own terms. We can give her time to get there. And it's not me trying to shove food in her mouth. It's me giving her opportunities to explore and play with food on her own terms. So it was revolutionary for us. And that really helped me trust Violet and trust myself and work us towards a pretty good relationship with food. And to really start to dismantle a lot of my beliefs about diet culture in the process. But what I came up against fairly quickly once we moved out of that acute stage, and I had a preschooler and then an elementary school kid, and then a second daughter who had a very typical eating trajectory, and I'm just like now in the like daily grind of feeding children all the time, what I came up against then was the ways in which division of responsibility didn't quite answer every question. And in fact, sometimes felt like more pressure. Like there are rules. So, you know, one example is like the framework includes that parents are in charge of when food is offered, which means in between meals and snacks, you say the kitchen is closed and you just trust that the kid can power through that and they can come to the table hungry at the next eating opportunity. But I'm here to say, if you've had a kid who couldn't or wouldn't eat, and now that kid is saying to you, I'm hungry, it feels wrong in your body on a cellular level to say the kitchen is closed. And I've talked to parents of kids who's older kids who've had restrictive eating disorders, and they say the same thing. Like, I will never again say no to a kid who says they're hungry because they never want to deny that knowledge of their own hunger. And then it gets really complicated, right? Because kids learn to say, I'm hungry as like a bargaining chip. Like they don't always mean they're hungry, of course. Like there's a whole interpersonality thing happening. And sometimes it's I'm hungry because I'm trying to stall bedtime or there's different ways it comes up and you have to sort of suss that out. But there would be times like I would just realize I'm trying to serve dinner at 530 and these kids are ready for dinner at 430. And so for me to be like, no, no food for you for the next hour doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like I'm honoring them. It doesn't feel like I'm letting them listen to their bodies. Of course, we're going to have a snack, even if it means they don't eat much dinner. Like, this is fine. And that's a pretty mild example. But when we start to look at how this, like, being in charge of when, you know, let's consider that in, like, a family with neurodivergent kids, maybe who are on medication that suppress appetite during the school day, maybe who are, you know, just have a little bit harder time registering satiety cues or those cues are very intense for them in different ways. Often the schedule to feeding those kids has to look different than three meals and two snacks or what are three meals and three snacks. And there has to be more flexibility and parents need to feel more empowered to make these calls. And so there's another way in which the framework is actually somewhat ableist in that it's sort of ignoring those nuances. And what I really came down to is realizing that as great and liberating as this framework was, I was also still doing that thing I'd always done of needing to find an external source to explain eating to me, right? Like I was still doing that, looking for answers with someone else. And this was a very useful framework, but I can absolutely see how if you are still very firmly in diet culture, it can be deployed in ways that are super restrictive. And so if you are in charge of what food is offered, but you are scared to let your kids eat sugar, then you're not going to offer sugar. And so then your kids are going to be fixated on the foods that they're not getting. So there's a lot of nuance there. And I think the framework does a good job of, to some extent, encouraging parents to work through that diet culture stuff. 
But also there's this sort of ethos around it. And this doesn't just come from Satter. This comes with how it's marketed on Instagram, with kid food, Instagram, and dietitians, and all sorts of folks, where if you're still feeling like it's not working, it must be because you're doing something wrong. And that, again, just feels like another diet culture thing to me. And also like the examples of foods that are given in that space, right? The kid food Instagram interpretation of Satter's division of responsibility can be so orthorexic. Oh, yeah. It's the rainbow bento boxes, like (laughs) five kinds of produce for lunch. Like no child needs to eat four kinds of produce in one meal. I don't eat four kinds of produce in most meal. Like, what are we doing? No, it seems very extravagant to do that, actually. (laughs) Yes, and expensive and a lot of food waste. There's a lot of privilege involved in being able to do division of responsibility and be okay with the food waste that comes from it. Um, Like, they'll say, oh, we'll just, you know, serve small portions and let them add on. But like, it's inevitable. You're going to have food waste doing this. And that doesn't feel safe or okay for a lot of people. So I think in that way, it's not entirely trauma-informed or sort of sensitive to those different pressures. And I think it doesn't directly ask parents to reckon with their own anti-fat bias and how that is underpinning how they think about feeding kids. That's another core piece of it. I think for me, I discovered it as I was doing that work and it sort of led me to doing that work more fully. Not that I think we're ever fully unlearned in our biases, but like that has been a big focus of my work since. But I think for lots of folks, This is, and we see this with intuitive eating as well, right? Like this is where you start and stop. And so if you haven't also worked through your feelings around your child's body size or your fears about their future body size, then you are going to continue to deploy this method in a way that still has that underlying goal of like, I'm trying to have them have a healthy relationship with food so they'll stay thin. And then you're always putting a problematic contingency on it. Yeah, and so that leads nicely into discussing your book, which is called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. And I think you do a great job in the book of making that connection, right, between these well-intentioned ideas that parents might want to use to feed their kids, right, and then the reality that is so influenced and inflected by anti-fat bias and how that sort of twists these helpful frameworks or, you know, potentially helpful, largely helpful frameworks into something that can just be kind of reinforcing of diet culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this really came out of, as I was talking to folks about the eating instinct and starting to hear from readers and a lot of them were parents, I was hearing over and over how desperately parents want their kids to have a better relationship with food. Like I think particularly millennial parents, like we know what we went through in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. We don't want to replicate that for our children. You know, there was a thing on Instagram just yesterday showing a clip from Full House where Aunt Becky gives DJ diet tips. And it's like horrifying to be like, oh my gosh, we all watched that on a Friday night. And she's like, just have broiled fish and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Lord, this was just normal. And DJ's like, thanks, Aunt Becky. Like, oh, skin crawling. Anyway, so we know where we came from. We don't want that. But we don't know what to replace it with. And we also, a lot of us, really fear the idea that we would have a fat kid. We're afraid of what that would say about us and our parenting. We're afraid about what that would mean for their future health and happiness and how they'll be treated by peers. And that may be rooted in some very real stuff because we know that fat people are treated worse in a lot of, I mean, in pretty much all of the ways. So, you know, we're not wrong. Like the system is stacked against us. But if we can't 
in our own hearts and in our own homes unconditionally accept our kids' bodies, whatever size they are, if we're always putting conditions around who gets to have a healthy relationship with food and who gets to love our bodies, we're never we're not going to move past the Aunt Becky of it all. We're going to be right there still. It also ties into something we've talked about a lot for your first book and on your podcast and my podcast about this food environment piece, right? The the sort of Michael Pollan point of view that I think so many millennial parents have gotten caught up in or that was very formative for many of us. I think at least for you and me it was. And this notion that you were talking about of like it's a it's, you know, being a good parent, having a good eater means to breastfeed, means to make your own baby food. Like that's doing it quote unquote right. And you know, I think it intersects with these notions of like the food environment being quote unquote toxic and endocrine disruptors in the environment, making kids fat supposedly, and, you know, all this messaging that sort of feels progressive in some way, right? That it's like looking at systems, looking at the influence of industry and sort of relationships between industry and government and uncovering these seeming nefarious ties that are doing damage to people. But it's framed through this lens of anti-fat bias, right? It's, it's, you know, it's like, this is bad because it's making people fat. This is bad because it's making our kids fat and, you know, creating quote unquote childhood obesity. And it's just so insidious, right? Because I think people are thinking that, again, that they're doing the right thing and looking at things from like a food systems perspective. But the, the fat phobia that's baked into that is so toxic in and of itself. Yeah. I think that, Pollen and, you know, all those folks, Mark Bittman and Mary Nessel and sort of all those like leading mid-2000s voices on this, I think they made a fairly, I would argue, a fairly conscious choice of it is hard to get people to care about migrant farm workers' conditions. It is hard to get people to care about environmental issues they can't see immediately in front of them, but it is not hard to get people to care about their weight because they already do. So if we can connect all of this to weight, then we can get America's attention. And if we can say this is part of fighting the war on, quote, obesity, then we can really, um, yeah, like galvanize the troops, so to speak. And I just think that's where we then added this other layer of being a moral, socially responsible person to thinness. So it's not just about health. It's about like your duty to the environment too. It's part of being a good liberal. It's part of being a like a woke person. And we're ignoring the fact that in theory, people who ascribe to liberalism or wokeness or whatever you want to call it, like also value people's individual rights and body autonomy. And this is a framework that completely denies that. So there's a real disconnect there, but it's fascinating how baked in it still is and how much so many people have a hard time letting go of that. You know, I often get like, I get intuitive eating, but what about processed foods? Like, surely not there. Surely not. Do you think we can? I think they feel like surely there comes a point where it's not okay to accept this body because you've given up on these other values. And that's just, it couldn't be further from the truth. And a lot of what they're pushing is not evidence-based. It's not supported by the science. I was doing a podcast interview earlier this week this will have aired by the time we do this, so whatever, I'm just going to throw it under the bus, where the host was like, all there with me on like, yes, yes, fat phobia is so terrible. It's so terrible how we treat the children. And she was like, well, it's not like it's their fault. America, the average American eats a credit card worth of plastic every week. And I was like, I mean, that's just not true. What? 
Like, what? (laughs) But she wanted to say, like, it's the environment. It's the chemicals in the environment making us fat. So we shouldn't be mean to fat people because it's not their fault because of the environment. And I was like, even if there was any truth to that, like, you're not doing fat people the favor you think you are by pushing that kind of, like, lack of evidence theory. That's not... That's not actually removing any of the barriers I'm talking about. That's sort of continuing to other, because, you know, she feels like she's escaping this because she's so smart and informed about these issues. So she's presumably not consuming the plastic somehow that the rest of us are just mindlessly eating. (laughs) Um, But like, that's still, so it's still playing into this clear hierarchy of who, who is exposed to these things. Well, and it's also like it's not dismantling any of the pre-existing fat phobia that was there in the first place. It's just adding on to it. So it's like a landfill kind of. It's like building on this foundation of yuckiness that's already there and just piling more and more stuff on top. So it's creating a bigger structure. But I think that goes back to what we were talking about before about like the desperation so many people feel around their health and, you know, issues that they've had with chronic illness or pain in the healthcare system not being taken seriously. And it's the fact that they were so desperate and like wellness culture was there for them. And I think in some cases, you know, for some people, I mean, my experience was that when I first was dabbling in like elimination diets, I was like, oh, this is it. This is working. This is making me feel better. And then over time, I was like, is it though? Like in my heart of hearts, I really don't know, but I'm still going to tell people because now I have like everyone in my life on board to make me gluten-free stuff and like asking me how it's going and whatever. So I'm going to still say that it's working, but actually. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard piece of it. People get really invested in your journey with you. And it's hard to, I remember that. Yeah, it's hard to be like, yeah, this isn't it either. It's still terrible. I mean, and I think that just speaks to like, we're uncomfortable with people being sick and in pain. We're not, we don't have a framework for accepting disability or disease in a chronic way. And so we want there to be answers. And, you know, we want there to be fixes. Yeah. And it's so understandable, I think, for people who are going through it themselves to want that. But then I think people can get so dug in when it's like, well, this is working for me or this is the thing. Because like maybe the thing that's working for you is like the empathy, right? Like you said, you know, you were finding the empathy in that, those alternative spaces. That was true for me. That's true for so many people I talk to. Like that's where the empathy is a lot of the time. Not that it can't be found in conventional healthcare. I have some wonderfully empathetic providers now, you know, but it's like, it's taken a long time to find a full team of providers who are really empathetic. It might be, might have been here or there in the past, you know, in the conventional system versus like when you go to acupuncture, when you go to yoga or when you go to a naturopath or something, it's like that empathy is kind of there, right there. You know, it's, it feels like much more freely offered. And so I think that is something that people can kind of react to as well when, when they feel like they're, worldview with wellness culture is under attack, right? When it's like somebody's debunking their favorite theory, because I think, you know, there's things like that myth of like, we eat a credit card's worth of plastic or whatever that feel like, okay, this is giving me something to hold on to. This is giving me something, you know, maybe the person who transmitted that message to me has helped me in other ways or like, seems like they've helped me in other ways, right? And so attacking that message is like attacking the person. So there's so much tied up in it, I think. There's so many reasons for holding on to these beliefs. But yeah, just sort of starting to untangle that and like look at reasons why what you're believing might not be entirely true. And I like to ask people, does this really feel like it's working or do you feel like it was working for a while and then maybe that kind of wore off? Because I think that's a 
common phenomenon with the placebo effect. It's very strong and it can have literal pain relief effects at the beginning, even long term, you know, but I think over time that sort of wears off for a lot of people. And then it's like, okay, maybe this is not what it was cracked up to be. Definitely. Yep. That tracks with my experience and yeah, also what I've seen in my reporting for sure. There's so many directions we can go, and I definitely want to circle back to talk about your book more. But as we're talking, and this will be old news by the time this comes out, but as we're talking, Gwyneth Paltrow has been very much in the news. She's America's leading almond mom. She's like always got some restrictive eating habit or weird wellness plan that she's touting. And so it's not really, really super newsy, but she was just in the news recently because she detailed this very restrictive wellness practice or routine that she supposedly does. And This is like to be expected from her. And also, as you and I have both acknowledged in various ways, I think we see that that is a part of the business model. And she literally says that in the podcast episode that this whole flap was about. She says towards the end of that episode, you know, controversy is part of the business model. Putting out there these things that people love to jump on and attack. Oh, my God, that's so restrictive or that's so woo-woo and out there and there's no evidence is what brings eyeballs and clicks to her media empire. And I think it's no coincidence probably that the podcast host whose podcast she did, who's a good friend of hers and her doctor, by the way, which is also a weird dual relationship. Oh, yeah. That is actually a triple relationship because her company, Goop Press, just published his book. Lord. Yes. The controversy being the business model actually makes a lot of sense when you look at it that way, right? But I think there's something larger even there too. And I was trying to like think about whether there's a way to write about this eloquently and haven't come up with it yet. But she's talking to this doctor who's a functional medicine practitioner, right? And he and she's talking about how he's done all this testing on her and put her on these different protocols and she's mostly paleo and does this and that and all these other practices like dry brushing and a sauna and stuff like that. And he's like right there co-signing it all with her. And I think there's something with the functional medicine space in particular and integrative and alternative practices to to a point where there's like, you know, this this emphasis on like testing, getting to the root cause, the quote unquote root cause of the problem that really helps people feel like so seen and cared for, even if it's just going around in circles for years and years and years. Yeah. It feels like you're getting answers and you've had these symptoms that feel inexplicable and are so distressing and painful, and you just want to know, like, I think people want to know why, you know? And that they think they're getting to some truth, and they're usually not getting anywhere near a truth. And the connection to diet culture is so interesting, too, because I think, you know, in a lot of those spaces, the solution is largely food-related, right? It's cut out all these foods, you know, take these supplements, maybe increase certain foods, but largely it's like, abstemious. It's like, you know, taking taking food away is the path to healing. And I think that just is so understandable for a system that is built on such a foundation of diet culture and anti-fat bias and like the anti-black racism that underlies all that, right? It's like, of course, of course, taking out food is going to be the the solution that's touted. No, I think that's right. I think it's really rooted in like the sort of puritanical restriction that our country is founded on. And yes, the racism. And I think that, yeah, again, it feels very actionable and concrete. And it's also what most of us were already doing, right? Because most people are active participants in diet culture before they get 
maybe diet culture and wellness culture has always been kind of tangled together. But before you get to like the functional medicine doctor level of like testing your pee and your blood and doing all that, like you've probably already been on some kind of restrictive diet for at least like a hot minute in your life. And so there's like a familiarity to it as well of like, right, right, right. This I know I have been told this is what solves everything. It sort of ties into this discussion you have in your book of dieting dads, which I think will probably resonate with a lot of listeners. You found in your research that men are the most likely to perpetuate anti-fat bias, but also this sort of performance of dieting and avoiding foods that their kids are bringing into the house. Peter Atia was an example you use in the book, right? Of, but I think there are so many probably dads like this, but he's he's this functional slash alternative wellnessy person who's really it's like the biohacking section of wellness culture that he is all about and it's this idea that you can be sort of a machine and like finally control what goes into your body and like calibrate it precisely through all this testing and monitoring and you talk in the book about how he posts photos of and enlists his followers for quote-unquote accountability of foods that his kids bring into the house and does like a hashtag denied, hashtag avoided, like, look at me, I'm so good for avoiding this food, right? Yeah, like food his wife is making for their kids. Like, I mean, his kids are little, they're not grocery shopping. His wife is making them like mac and cheese or putting out, you know, giving them veggie straws as snacks. And he's like, look at my willpower resisting this. And it's so interesting because the other thing about the Gwyneth debacle is, of course, the internet freaks out when Gwyneth tells us about her crazy diet. But the internet doesn't freak out about Peter Atia. And I mean, I know he's not like as giant of a household name, but it doesn't freak out about any of the men who do these things because we give a gravitas to men about food and diet that we don't give to women. We assume that when a female celebrity is on is doing some like elaborate lifestyle thing, it's for weight loss, it's vanity, it's, you know, like like, you know, it's Kim Kardashian, it's Gwyneth. It's like this sort of very where we're like, this is an eating disorder. This is so messed up. And then what he's talking about, he follows an intermittent fasting protocol. And then, yeah, he really wants to eat his kids' mac and cheese. Of course he does. <laughs> he's been deprived. Even when he is eating, when he's not fasting, he has all these rules about what he's allowed to eat. So it's not surprising that he then finds his kids' food very tempting because he is probably hungry, right? Like, this is what an eating disorder therapist or dietitian would absolutely classify as a red flag. But it's never questioned because he is a man of science. He is very built and articulate and manly in the way he talks about these things. And so he gets this credibility when he's really pushing habits that are just as dangerous. And when folks are, you know, we worry about folks emulating Gwyneth. I worry about folks emulating this guy because it's just as destructive, the eating habits. And so I think there's some real interesting double standards and misogyny at work there in terms of who we listen to in the foods and wellness space and who becomes kind of a stereotype or a joke of themselves, even though, of course, she's also profiting tremendously off this. But the thing is, is it doesn't just like it's obnoxious to see a woman dismissed. But I mean, I'm not going to stand here and be like, we should listen to Gwyneth Paltrow more like she's not <laughs> who I'm worried about. But what it really does is it underserves people of all genders because it means that men who are struggling with food and body image stuff or struggling with any of these issues, they don't have a script to talk about it. 
they don't have the language. We're not giving men the tools to say, I hate my body and I feel bad about it. And I need to talk about the anti-fat bias I've experienced. They're given the Peter Atiyah script of like, muscle through, have willpower, do your research, like be really hardcore about it, and it'll all work itself out. And that's truly terrifying. I mean, that's really doing nobody any favors. And then it's particularly dangerous when we're talking about, you know, households where these men are fathers. And so this is what they're modeling to their kids about what a, quote, healthy relationship with food looks like. What do you think people can do? I know you've written in your newsletter and talked about how to approach the dads, how to approach the husbands, how to approach the partners who are caught up in diet culture and maybe transmitting this stuff to their kids. I mean, it's hard because on the one hand, especially if we're talking about heterosexual relationships, I'm really aware that women are already socialized to carry so much of this water. We are socialized to be the ones who feed kids, to do more of the meal planning. And that also means that we're more likely to have encountered something like division of responsibility or intuitive eating and sort of be a little further along in this work because we're on Instagram like furiously researching what to do about picky eaters and a lot of the husbands are not doing that same research or doing that same learning. Or they're doing the learning of like listening to Peter Atia and learning how to intermittent fast and biohack and stuff. Right. And they're, yeah, so they're not encountering the counter narrative, but they're also like not even doing the work of grocery shopping and figuring out what's for dinner half the time. So like, I just want to acknowledge that it's like, the, the, this is our starting point. We have to figure out how to open the doors to these conversations with men. And also it's annoying to me that we have to because like, here's another thing women get to fix. Cool. Um, so just want to articulate that. But that being said, I do think it's really important that if you're co-parenting with a cis man, you do open the door to these conversations because it is so dangerous to just let that framework lie for so many reasons. And this might look like sharing your own, if it feels safe and, you know, you have good communication, like sharing, like, this is why it's so important to me personally not to transmit diet culture and wellness culture to our kids. This is how I've struggled because of it. And really explaining how it has harmed you and why you don't want to replicate that harm with your children, I think is important. And also making a space where you're not critiquing or sort of picking on your husband for these belief systems, but maybe trying to give him a space to talk about why it feels so necessary. You know, why does it feel so important that you have to hashtag avoided on the donuts when we bought donuts because it's a Saturday morning and that's a nice thing to do with our family, you know? Why is it so critical that you cannot mix a workout? And so our family's entire weekend schedule revolves around when you're going to do your bike ride for your Ironman training. Why is this so critical to your sense of your identity? What need are you not having met here? Is this really the way to meet those needs and to serve that? And just creating more space for men to talk about the emotions around food. It was fascinating reporting that chapter, how Literally, I am on calls with these guys because I'm like, I would like to talk to you about your emotional relationship with food in your body. And they couldn't talk about emotions. They would, you know, they would pivot those questions. They would, they would tell me facts. They would tell me their histories, but they really struggled to say how it felt. And it just really underscored to me that men need more vocabulary for talking about 
the feelings, the experiences they've had of weight-based teasing, of bullying around, you know, if they were the fat kid, if their dad was hard on them or had really high expectations of them as athletes, like all of that, we need to make a space to talk about. And then I guess the last thing I would say is like, if that work is not accessible right now, either because of your relationship with this person or they're so sort of entrenched in this stuff that they're like, yeah, no, I'm not giving up the Ironman training. I'm not going to eat carbs. You know, if that's where they are, I think you need to sort of be able to say like, we need to find some common ground in terms of our shared values around how we're feeding the kids. And we need to agree the diet talk can't come to the table. The body shaming can't come to the table. We need to have some ground rules for how we're going to engage on this with the kids, because this might be something you need to do for yourself. But we have all this research that shows how harmful this is to kids to grow up marinating in this environment, and they don't deserve that. And so figuring out where you can draw those lines. It's hard. This is very hard work and hard conversations. Yeah, extremely hard because it gets at so much deep stuff that so many people haven't really looked at. You know, I know before I started doing this work as a dietitian, I had thought about it myself because of my own history with food, my own disordered relationship with food, but never really done the work. I didn't even feel safe bringing it into therapy for years until I'd been with my therapist dealing with other issues for years. So I get how hard that is to to sort of open the door and it may take time. So yeah, take, giving it time and taking a long view kind of approach. But doing what you can, I, I like what you said about kind of doing what you can to keep it away from the table and away from the kids as much as possible to preserve their relationships with food. What are some other strategies or ideas you have for parents maybe who are listening to this who or who've read your book and are realizing that their own difficult relationship with food may have bled over into how they fed their kids and maybe are feeling shame for that or having a hard time kind of reckoning with that. What would you say are some ways they can both take care of themselves and start to shift the relationship with food around the house and with their kids? Well, first, definitely give yourself grace because, I mean, we all, nobody comes into parenthood with this stuff worked out. Like, that's extremely rare. <laughs> um, extremely rare. Christy, you may be the, the exception to that. I know I was just saying on your <laughs> podcast that I feel like I was so lucky to have that. Yes, yes. <laughs> But I also had my first kid at 40, so, you know. Right. You had a little, uh, you had some time, you, you put in some work. I had a couple decades. Yeah. This is your profession, et cetera. But most people do not come into parenthood with this stuff worked out. So give yourself some grace. This is really hard. This is really deep stuff. It's not going to just sort of all fly out of your family culture just because you read my book, read Christie's book, whatever, and are like, great, I don't want this anymore. Like, it's, it's hard. Um, that being said, I think there are... A couple sort of small steps, I think, looking at can we set some, we don't shame bodies here. We don't make fat jokes here. We don't talk negatively about any particular food or any particular body. Just like as a family culture, can we say that that is a value that we're all striving for? We don't have to get it perfect all the time, but like that's our goal. That can go a long way. Um, another one is if there's a scale in your house, can it not be in your house anymore? Because that is definitely a tool that is probably not doing you any favors. And certainly, if your kids start engaging with it, that can cause a lot of harm. So just deciding to be a scale-free house, if that feels accessible to you. Again, this might be stuff that you need to work with a therapist to get to the point of being able to do. But I think it's a nice, concrete goal for folks to think about. The other thing that came up a lot in my reporting is 
parents of older kids where they did it the diet culture way for a few years or even a decade, you know, they were really controlling around sugar. They required broccoli to be eaten before you got dessert. They talk negatively about bodies, et cetera, et cetera. They were able, there's several stories in the book of parents who were able to change that narrative simply, I mean, not simply through lots of hard work and time, but the starting point was saying to their kids, I think I got this wrong and I think you deserve better and I want to trust you. I want to trust your body and I want to trust you and I want our home to be your body's safe space. And that is not an easy conversation to have at all, but I think being able to offer that to your kid as a starting point and say, you know, and I want to do some things differently. I want to give you more access to foods you haven't felt like you could eat. I want to let you be more in charge of your hunger and when you need to eat and things like that. And like, let's think about what that would look like. And then knowing that like your kid is not going to trust it right away. Your kid is probably going to really gravitate towards the foods that have been restricted. That may be hard for you, but that's an important part of the process. And there may be ways that it feels like you're going backwards a lot, but really articulating your desire to change things. I think I saw a lot of relief from kids when their parents did that. And the other thing is when I talk to adults about their own stuff with food and body, it's pretty clear that their parents not being able to admit that they got it wrong, it continues to be a source of stress. Like one of the number one questions I get from readers is, how do I get my mom, you know, who's now 65 and I'm 40 or whatever, how do I get my mom to stop talking about this stuff? Like, why is my mom still so obsessed with dieting? And there's so many reasons. Boomers had a really rough road. Diet culture was not kind to them. There's a lot there. But from the position of the adult child, it's still a real source of stress that their body still doesn't feel safe around their parents. And so if you want something different, you can start making it different. Yeah, I think that's so huge. And I I feel like the people I've spoken to who have either had that conversation with their kids or were lucky enough to have a parent who had that conversation with them, I think it really does open up space for a different possibility, for a different way of being. And yeah, like you said, it's not going to happen overnight and the kid is most likely going to want reassurance again and again. Really? Do you really mean it? What about now? What about when I eat this, you know, entire bag of whatever, right? And so that's the hard part, I think, for the parent who's been steeped in diet culture is trusting, okay, they just ate that. It's going to be okay. I'm not going to restrict that again, because if I do that, that sets us back up on the exact same path that we were before. I'm going to trust and allow this to happen to work itself out. And it really does over time, you know, with enough time and practice and space and support and conversations and it's all messy and difficult but you know I've seen it happen for families that never thought it could so it is possible and like I want to be clear that the victory is not that you'll get a kid and this isn't what you're saying but I just like to spell it out the victory is not that you'll get a kid who like no longer likes sugar you know that like they'll eventually like okay they'll have to eat a lot at first and then they won't want it anymore like that's not where this is going you're probably going to have a kid who always likes sugar because we all like sugar. You know, like It's normal to like sugar and who may always want to eat three brownies in one sitting when they come out fresh from the oven. And that's completely normal and great, but they won't have a fraught relationship with it. They won't feel shame afterwards. They won't feel anxious that they can't get as much as they want. They won't obsess over it. They'll be able to enjoy the food they enjoy in whatever quantity is enjoyable to them and then move on with their day and their life. And that's 
I think that's just a nuance to it that sometimes I worry parents are like, oh, okay, if we do this, they'll eat less sugar. And I'm like, no, they're probably always going to eat more sugar than you thought was okay. But that's because... Kids love sugar and need it, actually. Yeah. need need lots of carbs to grow and to function, and it's great. And because your starting point of what is the right amount of sugar was not a right answer. Like, that right. was diet right. uh, It was not a reasonable expectation. So, Yeah. No, such an important point and something that I like to articulate too is the goal is never to have this sort of wellness culture relationship with food where it's like, I'm just drawn to whole foods and unprocessed and plant-based and blah, blah, blah. And I never want sugar, which is what I think a lot of people think it's supposed to look like. Because again, being conditioned by diet and wellness culture, that's what a quote unquote healthy eating plan is supposed to look like. And I think these interpretations of intuitive eating, like interpretations of the division of responsibility, I see so many diet and wellness culture tinged interpretations of intuitive eating that say that essentially, right? That's like, you're not going to want those things anymore. Or the interpretations of mindful eating where it's kind of the same thing. There's a a book that came out a few years ago by a big mindful eating person that was like the joy of eating X food. And it was basically a very restrictive amount of a food that's deemed quote unquote bad, you know? Right, right, right. Oh, so frustrating. So frustrating. So yeah, it's, it's not that. That's not what we're going for here. But having a relaxed relationship with food, having the ability to eat as much sugar or whatever other kind of food that you want and need, you know, is, is the goal. And to not beat yourself up over it, to have a kid who who can just move on with their life. Right. Well, thank you so much for being here. This is such a great conversation. And I love your book. I feel like it is so needed. And I think it's going to do so much good for people, not just parents. I think it's going to be very helpful for parents, but also just anyone who has been parented. I found myself resonating with things as a child of parents, you know, who's gone through certain things in my life and my relationship with food. I think there's a lot there for everyone, really. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So tell us where people can find the book and you and learn more about your work. Sure. So the book is Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. It is available all of the places that you buy books. There's audiobook and ebook and, you know, hardcover, regular paper book. And then you can also subscribe to my newsletter, which is called Burnt Toast. It's at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. And I also host the Burnt Toast podcast, which you can get wherever you are listening to this podcast. And then if you that's still not enough for you, you can also follow me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and a little bit of TikTok. And it's at V underscore Soulsmith for all of that. Amazing. We'll put links to that in the show notes too, so people can find you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to talk with you as always. Always, always. Thank you so much, Christy. So that's our show. Thanks so much to our guest for being here. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And you can get new episodes delivered by email every other week by signing up at rethinkingwellness.substack.com, where you can also become a paid subscriber for early access to episodes and to help support the show. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. If you're looking for help healing your own relationship with food and breaking free from diet and wellness culture, I'd love for you to check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. You can learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. 
If you have any questions for me about wellness and diet culture, you can send them in at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in my newsletter or possibly even on this podcast sometime in the future. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Our album art was created by Tara Jacoby, and theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>